Hi everybody, thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast. Today I have with me the writer, Steve Peters. If you want to find him, he goes by Steve Q as in Queen, J as in Jennifer. I don't know. (laughs) Steve QJ on Medium. Also on Twitter, it's at Steve, but it's S-T-E-E-V. QJ on on Twitter. And he's really been making a splash lately with a lot of writing on um, the anti-racism and critical social justice movement. Of course, I have my co-host with me, David Bernstein. And before we get started, we, the first question is always, what are we drinking for this conversation? Steve, you are in a later time zone than us. So I hope that you've got something more fun than I know that David has. Anything? Yes. Do you have anything fun to drink? I actually wasn't. I I, I was about to make a cup of tea, and I realised I was running late. I really I was running late, and I didn't make one. So oh, what? this time, this time difference mistake has made me not have a drink at all, and it's I don't know. I don't know who to blame. So you just have to. We'll have to drink from your I've cup got of knowledge. A cup of tea here. That's that's about it. Well, I've got a cup of tea too because it's early for me, and I've got to tell you what I did is um, Starbucks. The only thing I collect, I collect mugs anytime I go somewhere for Starbucks from where- No, wait, this I is went. not possible. Do you do that too? I do exactly the same thing. I have those. I've got the new ones because I'm a little bit cooler. Oh, I know. I don't actually like the new ones. They're not as big, yeah. but you see, people try to give them to me as gifts and I'm like, um, no, if I haven't been there, it doesn't count. Yes. So I've <laughs> got with me my Ireland cup, which is as close as I've been to you. In the UK, right. so I'm drinking tea out of my Ireland cup because I have yet to be to your hometown. What a great coincidence! No, yeah, I, I um, have. I haven't got the island one actually. I've never been to Ireland, even though it is on my doorstep. But right now, I'm in Spain, and I do uh, have a Spain one. Okay, cool. David, any anything fun? Because I know it's coffee for you usually. Yeah, my cup is empty right now, but I, I promise next time around, I'm coming to the table with scotch. So <laughs> <laughs> sober, and that's a good thing. Well, I have to tell you, so this is how I got in touch with Steve. I've got a little story to start. And then, Steve, we've got tons of questions to ask you. Um, So Steve writes, one of the first pieces that I read of Steve's was um, anti-racism. Like, let me get the exact same name here. I had it. Anti-racism is becoming troubling, troubling, troublingly. (laughs) That's actually a really hard word. Troublingly, troublingly (laughs) racist. And I have to tell you, Stephen, yeah, I'm on Medium. I'm a writer, too. And I'm in the same kind of space as you are. But it was my father who sent me your piece. And I um, just want to tell you a little story about that, because I think this is a good segue into our conversation. So my father is clearly, if you're watching us on, on YouTube, a white male. <laughs> and, and he's a boomer. Uh, that's the term that we you know give, give our older white generation here. And, but he's, a, he's an Air Force pilot. And he went to the Air Force with at the same time as they first allowed black um, airmen in. And so he his best friend was a guy by the name of Isaac Payne, Ike Payne, who was one of the first black, they call them the trailblazers, black Air Force cadets. And he was a test pilot with my dad too. 
And so my dad has stories from that time where, and so I grew up with this family. This is, you know, what I, what I knew. And my dad has stories of racism where they would go into bars and the mirror granted again, this is back in like the fifties, sixties, whatever, sixties for, for, for college and where Ike would not be served. And my father and, you know, a few of the other um, colleagues would say, well, you don't serve him. We're, we're leaving. Right. And so he's seen racism firsthand, but Ike was the kind of guy that, you know, he, he, nothing, you didn't say no to Ike. Right. And so, I mean, this is my dad's best friend. And so my dad, as an older white male, reading stuff on medium, he's confused. And I think a lot of <laughs> people are because all of a sudden here's this man who fought racism by back in a time where it was very apparent in the United States, but I mean, his best friend, that's you know, that's all he knew. And, and now he's confused because as a white man, he's, you know, all of a sudden it turned into the, you know, he's a demon. And so all that to say, um, he's the one who sent me your very first piece. And then I've read from there and I, there's several other things I want to talk to you about, but I mean, it was like, he goes, finally, Jen, finally, this, I understand, Steve, yeah. I understand. Like, I understand that there is racism. I don't understand the way we're talking about it today. And then I know that you got a huge response from that piece. And you wrote yeah. a follow-up piece called the white people in the comments, which was another yeah. brilliant piece. And I'll link all this in um, my podcast notes. But I would just love to hear from you. Like, what were you thinking when you wrote that? Uh, what has been the response? And where are you now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Um, writing on Medium has been weird because I started writing on Medium pretty much exactly a year ago. And um, I wrote about all kinds of different things. And then every now and again, I, I did a lot of reading, of course, as well. And so I read a lot of these articles on race that you're talking about. And was, it, they weren't confusing to me. They were just infuriating because I'm looking at these big publications who are supposed to be centering black voices. I'm looking at all of these black writers who are kind of um, apparently very activist and very serious about the issue of racism. And I'm like, why don't any of you, like not a single one of you represent me? Why don't I, why don't I hear what you're saying and feel like connected to it from any of you? Why is, it, why is it that everything you're saying just feels so wrong and so divisive and so backwards to me? And why are these publications putting this stuff front and center? Why is it that every time I go onto the homepage, my feed is dominated by this stuff? And so, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to write about race a little. And so I did, I wrote a couple of articles last year about race and they, and they just went nowhere. No one really read them or said anything about them. I'm like, okay, great. I guess this is just the way it is with uh, medium. I guess this is just the way that people talk about race here and no one's really interested in a different perspective. Um, and the first piece I wrote actually, which got any traction was a different one. It was called, um, I just discovered I'm white. <laughs> and it was um, it was kind of just the the overflow of frustration. So I commented on somebody else's article. I mean, she, she I can't remember what her name is now, but she'd written a very popular article about race, and it was basically challenging that trope of um, if you are accused of racism, don't fall back on the oh I have black friends defense. So you know 
if someone does that to you, you're supposed to ask further questions. And she said, you see, there's this litany of questions that you're supposed to ask the white person. So I have black friends and they were ridiculous. They were so ridiculous. And the thing about it was I commented in, in my response to her, look, the majority of black people can't answer these questions yet. What you're asking is preposterous. You're asking people to be willing to die for your cause. You're asking people if they, if you make sure that their children's friends have black friends. I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. This is actually what was written in the, in the article. And she blocked me. She didn't respond. She didn't say anything. She just blocked me. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's the way it is. And then a couple of days later, I read another one talking about white privilege. And this is by an author who I, I'm not going to name drop her, but I cannot stand this author because I just feel like everything she says, I'm very suspicious of a lot of the stories she tells, first of all, like everything she writes is just the kind of uh, another, oh, life is so terrible for me and, and my life is a constant, it's a constant procession of oppression, which I don't think is true of really any black people today. Um, but she also has this view of white privilege, which is if I'm white, then I would immediately be treated wonderfully by everyone. I would immediately get every job I applied for. I could walk through life easily. Everyone would want to date me. There's no problems in my life if I was white. And so I wrote this article just in response to those two incidents. I was like, I can't stand this. And so I wrote this sarcastic thing saying, oh, wow. When I look at this article, I realize that I qualify for white privilege by all, the, by all the measures that she's listed here. I must be white myself and just not have realized it. And then that falls into place why this woman blocked me because I'm a white guy talking about racism and of course she's gonna block me. And so I wrote this kind of satirical piece and that kind of blew up. Not really on Medium, but on Twitter. A lot of people found that on Twitter, uh, got linked to by a few quite high profile writers. And so that was my first, oh, so maybe I can actually write honestly about race. And even if Medium doesn't really pick it up, um, someone will people will read it and understand that there is there is a beacon of sanity out there somewhere in the race conversation um and then i wrote a bit more i ended up writing about politics some of those pieces got quite popular as well and then i was like you know what like i want to write about this because i'm sick of them i i, I still wasn't seeing any kind of counterpoints to these voices um and so yeah i wrote a few pieces they got increasingly popular and then the piece you talk about um anti-racism is becoming troublingly racist that absolutely blew up and what i think was really interesting about that piece was that it was it blew up like everybody agreed with it everybody so i had writers in that in the comments for that piece congratulating it who i had specifically in mind when i was saying you people who write about race i was thinking exactly of them and they were in my comments saying oh this is such a great piece and it was funny because they got pushed back in my comments from other people saying what are you talking about why are you saying this you know but it was kind of like this thing that somehow hit that perfect spot in the middle where everyone could see how problematic some of this stuff was um and and it was really great it really kind of emboldened me to say okay so actually if i get this right um First of all, medium isn't kind of running some conspiracy where they're suppressing, you know, suppressing the message. It's just a question of, of getting the message right. Um, and I can actually talk about this. And of course, I'm very well aware that the color of my skin insulated me from a lot of the dismissal or criticisms that I would otherwise face. Um, so it kind of puts me in a unique position where if I kind of get the message right, I can actually talk about something in a way which I think well, which, which is clearly, clearly resonating with a lot of people and gives us a path to move forward, to make progress rather than just to build more and more resentment, um, which, I, which is really my ultimate goal. You know, I just think 
the goal of ending racism is really important to me. And what I'm confused about, probably in the same way as your dad is, is how, what, what are you guys aiming for? Like, what's your view of success? What's the world you want to create? And how is the divisive, bitter, petty writing that you're putting into the world, how is it bringing us any closer to that? Because if you can answer, if you can tell me somehow what your grand strategy is, that this stuff is going to, is, is going to heal this divide and get rid of this prejudice, fantastic, if you can succeed it. But it just seems so obvious, and not just to me, but to you look at you look for your comments and you can see how obviously divisive and counterproductive it is. So, um, so yeah, that's what happened. Then from there, obviously, I've, I've had um, a lot of contacts from different people um, wanting to talk, wanting to talk about books, all kinds of different things. So that's all kind of bubbling away in the background. But um, but yeah, it's been it's been a big it's been a big response, and it's been it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to have an opportunity to talk about something which I think is really, really important. So, thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, so you're from the UK, you're in Spain now. How mm. has vantage point affected the way you look at race in the United States where a lot of this conversation is unfolding? I'm assuming that many of the writers that you're talking about are American-based writers who grew up in mm. the United States. How your vantage point, I mean, we're talking, we're in an age where we talk about standpoint and lived experience. Um, mm. Has your lived experience and standpoint as, as um, a black person in the UK or in Europe affected that conversation? Well, so I, um, I have family in America. Um, well, actually some of them are old now, so some of them died, but um, I grew up visiting in America a lot. Um, and for the past, almost seven or eight years now, I've been pretty much homeless in the sense that I, I just, I travel now. So um, I spend almost all of my time just moving around the world, visiting different places, visiting different cultures. Um, uh, one of which is America. I spent a lot of time in America in that time. Um, it's been very, very interesting for me to see how race is perceived in different parts of the world. I've been, I've been to over 50 countries. Um, and seeing how race is treated in different parts of the world, how black people are viewed um, very, very positively and very, very negatively, depending on where you are. Um, and for me, the issue is always the same, I suppose. Like the, the, the fundamental issue is, is not that there's a special breed of this prejudice or a nationalized breed of this prejudice. People think, actually, this is a really interesting point. I think it goes way beyond even this prejudice. It's the question of, the, Tribalism is the idea that we can separate ourselves into groups based on X, Y, or Z criteria, and not on A, B, or C criteria, we could also choose but don't. And we decided that X, Y, and Z are super important. And so we use that to say, okay, so you're in this clan and you think this way, we do it politically, we do it uh, by gender, we do it by sexuality. Um, I, when I look at this problem, I look at it through that lens of, this flawed way of, of looking at other people, this way of looking at people as collectives rather than as individuals. And um, I don't think there's any huge difference in terms of um, how that manifests itself. Like I said, I've, I've, I remember going to America back in sort of the early 2000s with, my, um, with a white girlfriend at the time. And it was really fascinating to see how people responded to that. Some people responded really positively, some people responded really negatively. But what was interesting to me is that they responded at all. 
You know, it's like, I don't understand why you feel like there's anything to comment on at all here. Um, a few years later, I was there with, with, a, um, with a Korean girl. And it was fascinating to hear how she talked about race and how she talked about white people and her experiences growing up. Um, she was American. Um, and the, the fundamental core of the issue is still just the way that we group people together and act as if these distinctions are, are meaningful. So um, obviously um, growing up and growing up as a black person, my dad, um, my dad comes from slave stock or my dad's, my dad's family comes from slave stock. He, he grew up in Sierra Leone, he was born in Sierra Leone. Uh, which is one of the first colonies that African slaves, American slaves, were released back to to go back to Africa. Um, so that's where I'm, that's where my family's from. That's where Peters is from. Um, uh, and so understanding that how slavery has impacted Black people has always been, you know, that's that's always been part of my life. That's always been something which I've known about and educated myself about because it's it's very definitely part of my life. It's one of those little things that you don't really necessarily think of unless you're a black person, you know. My surname reminds me every day that somebody bought and sold own, uh, members of my family. It's something I can't not know about. So nowadays it's very common on the social justice left in the US, I don't know about the UK, maybe you'll mm -hmm. know, that uh, America is a white supremacist state. Yeah. Uh, we probably all agree at one point in history, not long ago, America was a white supremacist state, whether mm -hmm. it is a matter, at least in my mind, of contention. And wrote something that made me think about this more deeply, that, um, that sometimes when you make a generalization like that, it prevents you from actually diagnosing a problem in, in a more granular way that may actually be more helpful, that may make yeah. you on the exact precise issue of racism that you might be able to address but when you talk about it in these grand terms that America is white supremacist, it may make you stop at that level of analysis that's actually less helpful to solving the problem. How do you view that issue of whether we, whether Western countries or the U.S. in particular is a white supremacist nation? And what do you think that does to our analysis of racial dynamics in these countries? Well, yeah, exactly. So the question of white, the term white supremacy um, that term, to my mind, has a very specific meaning, and it had a very specific meaning for a very long time, and it was an important meaning, and I think that that meaning has been really diluted now. So, of course, white supremacy is, it's not fair to describe white supremacy simply as um, a situation where white people are the majority, or white people, uh, institutions were built by white people. White supremacy is about the idea that white people are superior to all other races and um, should subjugate them as a matter of course and everything about the nation is built around that. Now, there is of course truth to that idea within America and within, within our America's foundings. Um, but the idea that there's no way forward other than to completely tear down the entire system and start again. Well, let me say this, because this is what I always say about these questions. If you can show me how there's a way to do that, which is productive, non-destructive, and actually gets us where we all want to be, I'm all ears, I always am. But I don't see it and I've never heard it. So we have a system now um, in many countries, it's not just America, where the system was built for white people. And we're trying to figure out how do we change that? How do we create a system which is more fair and more just for people? And I think that any 
right-minded person is fully behind that goal. Um, but I think absolutely diagnosing every, every problem, every disparity as being a symptom of white supremacy, it, it's, it's very clearly not a functional way to solve the problem. And, and what always bothers me about this analysis, is that there's never a kind of a clear way of looking at the problem. So it's, it's kind of like, do we say that we haven't achieved um, equality in America until every single field is 13% black people? Um, that seems like an obviously flawed way of looking at the problem. And um, Glenn Lowry said it really well. He said, you're not taking groups seriously if you expect to see equal representation of every group in every situation. Groups, by definition, imply that there are differences between those groups in the, same, in the things they prefer, in the way that they think, in the culture, and whatever else. And there will be. Um, I was having a, a very long and tiresome conversation in the comments in one of my articles about this and saying, there are disparities within races, um, within different groups, within sexualities, within genders, all kinds of different things, which are caused by discrimination. There is no question about this. No one should be arguing with this point. Um, but there are also disparities caused by any number of other factors. And understanding that and trying to figure out, okay, so what's the problem we're solving? How are we making sure that people have the opportunity to get into these fields, to do what they want to do, and to compete on a fair playing field. And then we let the chips fall where they may. I don't see how that could ever be a problematic um, goal. And then the question is, of course, that's a very complicated thing to achieve. So how do we do that? And we sit down and we get our heads together and we figure out what that, what that solution is. Um, but simply just going white supremacy. Okay, great. Then what? Like, tell me what comes next. Right. You know, if you, if you can't do that, then your, your methodology just doesn't help anything. You know, it's as simple as that. Well, you know, I mean, we do have one author, Thomas Sal, who writes on these things a lot. Uh, Discrimination and Dispar Disparities is one of his books where he, I mean, his whole book is like, let's look at these disparities and see whether or not in, they're discrimination. Um, mm. But you get someone like that and, you know, he's um, he's conservative, uh, you know, and, and, and he's just kind of like, uh, Uncle Tom, or you know, he's just called yeah. something pejorative because it's like, well, that's not what we wanted to hear. Absolutely, yeah. So we're just going to call him. He's he's not. It would be like what you said. I guess I'm a white person. It's like ah, oh, he's just you know, it's what they call it, kinfolk, not skinfolk, or skinfolk. But that's kinfolk. yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. We've kind of again, we've we've, we've in the rush to kind of view white supremacy as this overarching narrative which explains everything we've had to kind of redefine what white supremacy is because otherwise it, it obviously doesn't fit. And so once you've done that and you go, okay, so, but now there are black people who don't agree. Well, in that case, you have to say that they're not really black because otherwise how does this all fit together? So then you have nonsense like multiracial whiteness in a, in a recent New York Times piece. Yes. These are necessary, these are logical conclusions once you start messing up these very basic ideas. Once you start kind of, allowing yourself to be unrigorous with the way that you define things. You have to slip further and further into stupid ideas. That's the only way you can really keep your footing, you know? So we, I'm laughing. Like, that's the newest buzzword is multiracial whiteness. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard yeah. of that one, David? Yeah, that's, that's the new. actually wrote a piece on that you article. must have missed the time piece, but I'm, I'm not surprised given the, <laughs> the, the direction of the discourse these days. <laughs> Absolutely, it's not surprising, and it's but it is mind-bogglingly offensive. Like I wrote a piece on that, just just expressing my anger at it because it's just I can't believe the idea. 
black people, again, it relies on the idea and it leans further into the idea that if you're black, you think a certain way, you see the world a certain way, your experiences are a certain thing. Um, if you don't rely on that analysis of being black, then you can't blame everything on white supremacy. You have to acknowledge the fact that, okay, so maybe there are other factors as well. We can look at that. Like I said, I, mm -hmm. there are very few situations in, um, in racial disparities today um, and certainly if you go back, you know, only a couple of decades where you can't, you can't say, okay, maybe racism is a factor in those, probably racism is a factor in those. Um, but if you want to say racism is the factor and it's the only factor, then you have to, what you do necessarily by that is limit black people and say, no, we are smaller and less diverse and we can't think. And we don't do this. The, the infuriating thing is part of my view of success part of my view of a world where racism isn't a problem anymore is that we don't do this with black people because we don't do it for white people. No white person is expected to be a representative of the entire view of white people. No white person is supposed to hold a certain line because all white people are supposed to hold it. We accept the fact that white people are full human beings who can be wrong about different things, who can have different opinions, who can discuss things in good faith. That's what being seen as a full human being is. So you know, I, of course, I get plenty of people saying, oh, yes, you're a water carrier for white supremacy or you're an Uncle Tom or you're whatever else. And it's the same thing. It's kind of like, look, here's the thing. Like, I will confess as much as I talk about this goal of seeing us all as human beings, like I've been raised in the same society as everyone else. Like I have this sense of kinship with black people. I want to see black people to succeed because I'm black. It's, I, I recognize it's silly and I recognize it's a part of who I am. But that doesn't mean I, I, when I come across a black person who disagrees with me, that automatically, I lean in a little bit more and say, okay, cool, let's talk. What do you mean? Why do you think this way? Not, oh, well, then you're obviously not, you know, you're not really a black person. And, and so what I found interesting is a number of black people who their affiliation is not with black people. It clearly, clearly is not. Their affiliation is with their ideology. And so you have these new fault lines where it's not even colour anymore, it's the way you think. That's, that's really become the new racism now. If you don't think the things I think, then you are a monster. Um, and there's right. no possibility for discussion. Right. right. So let's, let's um, unpack that a bit. You know, we are facing this um, ideological tsunami in Western societies, uh, perhaps most acutely in the US, but certainly... Um, seeing it in the UK and other uh, Anglo, um, you know, I've been asking myself, okay, what, what, what is this? And, and there, there, it seems to be there, there, there are two basic ideas. One is that, um, in, that biases are embedded in structure. That's one aspect of it. And the other is that is standpoint theory, that only the person being affected negatively affected by the structure has the insight and the lived experience to be able to talk about it and define it. And it's important because I think we probably agree that that bias can and often is embedded in certain structures. Mm -hmm. um, let's break that down and figure out how and when and um, what other factors might also exist alongside of it. But you can't have that conversation because that second pillar of critical theory, which which is standpoint theory prevents us from actually having an open conversation. It tries to silence any other explanation for reality or any other explanation for disparity. How do you deal, deal with the standpoint epistemology that is now 
making its way through uh, the academy and, and obviously even in the everyday thinking of people that we come across on Twitter or wherever else. Well, again, this is um, this is something which I think is a is is a new style of racism. It's just this neo racism where we have this idea that okay, so you um, have an experience, um, and it's different to mine, but because you are in X category, it is impossible for me to understand it. We're no longer fellow humans. You are a different category of human being whose experience I can never touch because you live in this alternate reality, and. For me, that's, first of all, absolutely and obviously false. But second of all, continues to separate us. Now, there are experiences about being a black person which a white person will not naturally think of, will not naturally appreciate. Of course, that's true. Um, as I said, you know, there's, there one, it was, I was thinking about this, I was talking about this recently, and that really struck me, the fact that just something as simple as my surname. My, my surname says something about my history, um, in a, in a negative way, which is just constantly ever present in the back of my mind. Um, that's something which a white person, it just might not occur to a white person until I point it out now. Oh my God, that's true. That's really, that's really interesting. That must be a really interesting thing to live with. Um, but we can talk about that. I can explain that to you quite simply and you can go, hmm, yeah, that's interesting. That must kind of, that must shape the way that you think things even, you know, when you, when you go about your life, that's, that's a factor which I don't deal with. I, don't, I know that my family weren't bought and sold in the past 200 years, whatever it might be. Um, but critical theory in all its, in all its levels, whether, whether it be about gender, whether it be about, um, race, it's all about the idea that you are completely separate to me and cannot understand me. And if we really embrace that, we're lost, right? If we embrace the idea that we're all living in silos, then we can just forget about communication at all. What's the point of talking? Like you are different to me and the black person sat right next to me who has lived alongside me all my life is still different to me. There are still things about our experience which are going to be different and which we can't fully appreciate about each other. So if we abandon conversation and empathy as tools which we use to kind of get closer to each other and understand each other's situations and find ways forward, then we're lost. And this seems to be a big part of it because, of course, if we do, if we don't, um, sorry, if we do abandon that, if we if we keep hold of this idea that we're all so different, then we get to hold on to our own sense of the world our own victimhood our own whatever it might be no one can challenge it because i say this is true and you have to believe me um i get to have a lot of fun with this so <laughs> because of the fact I, I was um someone came into my comments recently and was saying how racist i was on my latest article saying how racist i was because i was trying to undermine the anti-asian racism that's been happening attacks that have been happening um I don't think I could possibly have been more clear that that wasn't what I was trying to do at all, but this person obviously hadn't realised that, or hadn't, hadn't, hadn't read the article actually, it was very clear from the comments. Um, but he, the first thing he said in his comments was, oh, why aren't you, um, oh, what was the comment? Why aren't you talking about white people or something like that? And I was like, why are you commenting on a white person's article? Uh, oh no, that was it. Why didn't he kill any white people? And of course he did kill white people, but this guy was so uninformed he didn't even realise that. But um, I said, well, why are you commenting on a black person's article? You must be targeting black people. And he was like, no, 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 I wasn't doing that. I'm like, no, no, hold on a minute. This is my lived experience. You obviously um, 
what you think isn't important. What I think is what matters here. And I think you're being racist. So you are ipso facto being racist. And it's just really fun to see people squirm where they want to, we want to rely on these tropes. They want to kind of lean into the idea that, oh yeah, I think you're being racist. So you are. And they meet someone who, thank God, um, can play exactly the same card back at them and show them how preposterous it is. But they can't, they can't refute my claim without refuting their own. Um, I am absolutely fundamentally against this. We have to be able to talk to each other. We can talk to each other. We can understand each other. In the process of doing that, we will find people who don't want to understand. Let's be clear. You know, I've spoken to many people who don't want to hear it. They don't want to know. They don't want to be implicated. They don't want to feel like they have to do anything. And that's a separate conversation. We can recognize those people. We can recognize that problem. And let's face it, most of those people aren't in any way involved in changing things, making policy, moving us forward anyway. They just sit there until they feel like something affects them personally. You know, I've got a question for you going back to, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? No, no, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) I thought thought you were done, I apologize. But I wanted to go back since I've already interrupted you. I'll I'll carry on. Well, I want to go back to a question that David asked earlier about you know the difference between the U.S. and the and the U.K. Because you made a point mm-hmm. about saying you know when you brought a white girlfriend with you over to the U.S. and you know different people had views and you were just surprised in the first place that it was even a thing. Yeah. And here's where I'm at in the U.S. Is I am like I'm actually at the point now where I'm just exhausted talking about race because with critical theory, race is everything. And yes. so I told the story at the beginning about you know my dad and I grew up in this environment and, and I really I don't want to talk about I hate the the whole color blindness stuff, but um, no one's colorblind. I see that you are a black man. You know I mean like that's but yes. to the extent where um, you know judging people on 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 their character. But now, so I grew up that way. And now I cannot help but in every interaction to notice race. I am talking to a black man. I am talking to a Jew or, or religion or where I'm talking to a Jewish man. You know, I mean, it's just uh, on the top and it flattens everyone because, I mean, you're so much more than that. David's so much more than, you know. Uh, but so let me ask you, in the UK, do you feel like that as well? Like, Do you feel that everything's boiled down to race? Because you said that it was in the US where you were kind of surprised that it was just a thing in the first place. Um, so are you at the same point in, in the UK where race is everything, everywhere, all the time? I mean... It's one of those things where it depends where you are. So I'm from London. So in London, no, not really. London is such a melting pot that it, it's, it's very rare that race is an issue. Everyone you look at is a different you know, skin color or something. Um, but if you go to other parts of the UK, absolutely, you'll see the same. You'll see the same kind of surprise at interracial couples, or um, you don't. There's not the same delicacy about how people approach race. It's generally something which people don't comment on. But racism is definitely more of an issue outside of the major metropolitan hubs, just as it is in America. Um, you know, if you move out of like New York, right. wow, this is the thing, isn't it? So you move out of New York and San Francisco and cities like that now, and you'll see a different kind of racism. But now, of course, when you go into those hubs, you just see another kind of racism where race is everything and everyone is super careful about how they talk about race and everyone is, you know, it's easier for me as well being a black guy because I don't have people, um, I don't have to be careful about the way I speak about race. It's, it's more how I see other people are affected by it. I see other people hedging and worrying about how to refer to me and what the correct term is. Um, 
So my experience is it was a little bit different because I don't have to kind of be on the side where I'm worrying that I'm going to say the wrong thing. Um, and again, that's frustrating. Like I don't want people to feel like they can't just speak. Like we, we don't want to, what, what are we creating? We don't want that society where people are kind of like, oh, how do I talk about you? Um, and for me, that's a big deal. Like I remember always being curious about why is it that the issue of the color of my skin is something that we have debates about how to refer to? Like, what is that? You know, it, why is it that it's such a sensitive issue that you have, you know, if something is bad, right? If someone's got like a massive pimple on their nose, you're careful. You worry, how do I talk about this without offending them? Or what do I say? Or do I just ignore it? What do I do? <laughs> that self-consciousness, I don't want that applied to the color of my skin because I don't see it as a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. And so every layer of, of concern to me feels like you're saying, oh, there's something wrong with you, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, so no, I want the exact opposite. You feel completely free. Just refer to me, you know, I'm a black guy, no problem at all. I had a guy in my comments saying, you know, he's being very complimentary, but he was saying something along the um, a guy uh, who is clearly non-white who appears to be a male. And he wasn't being sarcastic. He was just kind of like, I don't want to say something that's right. going to offend you because right. I'm on your side. Right, you know? right. Walking on eggshells. You, you know, you know, the issue of microaggressions or the, uh, <laughs> you know, you use the word melting pot in one uh, about London. I've seen recently a list of common microaggressions where melting pot is one. Um, my, uh, melting pot is one one such microaggression. So mm -hmm. there. Oh, well, I'm sure. You well, have offended but, someone, Steve, and you're going to hear absolutely. about it. <laughs> this is the thing, I suppose, isn't it? It's a sanctity of offense. Like, you can't really open your mouth without offending one of the seven or billion people on the planet. You can't do it. And that's just the way it is. Like, we can't hold that to be our ultimate standard. Is, is everybody okay with what I just said? You know? And again, this is the erasure of the idea of intent, right? Like, if I say something... What am I trying to do? Do you find, do you sit there analyzing my words so that you can find a way to be upset by them? Or do you sit there listening to understand what I'm trying to communicate? Words are imprecise by definition. So again, it's all this, all of these attempts are being made to stifle conversation to a point where it's meaningless. And I just think that is an end goal we can't support, surely. That's an end goal which is obviously disastrous for everybody. So, um, right. So yeah, microaggressions are a perfect example of that. It's kind of like this changing landscape, which I didn't know. I didn't know that was a microaggression. And it's kind of like, how am I supposed to keep up with this? If I'm really, genuinely, I'm a good person. Of course, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. How am I supposed mm -hmm. to keep up with this? And if the price for making a mistake is that I'm kind of immediately branded a racist or whatever it might be, then of course I go silent. Then I just say, okay, I won't say anything at all then, which is what vast swathes of people are doing. And we don't need people to check out of this conversation. We need to have these conversations because that's how we're going to move forward. And but then we can't make the cost of joining those conversations sentient. You know, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we talk a lot about is the nature of diversity training in the workplace or in university or even in K through 12 education. Um, we've seen white fragility and how to be an anti-racist, some sort of canon texts within uh, diversity circles. And there is some pushback. Uh, sometimes it's not always heard in the corporation itself, but they'll, they'll come and call an organization like Counterweight, which uh, both Jennifer and I are involved with and say, I'm not yeah. happy 
being told what to think. Yeah. How do you do this? And are there other ideas? How would you do diversity in a organized setting? My top priority in, in, for, in that kind of environment, which seems to be the exact opposite, would be to enable conversation. Like that's the top priority, right? Is to allow people to speak without fear, without shame, um, about what they think, about what they feel, to get that stuff out in the air and then deal with it and then discuss it. Let's find out where the problems are. Let's find out what we think is unfair, is fair, is reasonable, um, and really tackle those issues. It's obvious that we can't have a situation where we just expect adult human beings to accept an ideology wholesale and follow it. They will. People will do that out of fear and out of obedience. But in the end, it won't work. In the end, what you will necessarily do is create people who rebel or who hold deeper resentments, which would eventually spill out at some other point. And frankly, a lot of these ideas are just flat out obviously wrong. And so we need to be able to sit down and have a real conversation about them. Now, I think, as I said, there are things about the black experience which white people won't know and they won't appreciate because they haven't, they haven't been a part of that experience. And so part of, I think, moving to a society which is more even for everyone is to say, okay, let's have a conversation where you listen to this perspective and then we're gonna talk about this perspective and we're gonna discuss why you might disagree or why you might feel threatened by it or accused by it or whatever it might be. Um, and we're gonna have an open conversation about it. The, the, Price for inclusion in that conversation is not silence or obedience or wholesale agreement. It's just that you talk honestly and we can have a discussion. And then maybe that discussion carries on for, like, for plenty of time after this meeting is over, because of course it needs to, right? It can't just be that you're silent, you're silenced and um, you're intimidated into silence. Uh, but yeah, I think that's really the, the biggest change I would make to the way that I see a lot of these things being approached is, hey, let's, talk about them i mean when you're when you're going in and actually sort of giving people advice what are you seeing like how are they how are they talking to um to people about how to move forward with these issues in the workplace yeah yeah well i i think there are some people who would just like to opt out you know they don't want to mm. make way in the workplace they don't want to put themselves at risk but they just can't stand the idea that they have to be subjected to a coercive ideology um, yeah and to, to argue back. And there are others who just object to the, the very fact that they're going through this training and they know they're going to be pushed to say or think something that they don't, not authentic to them. Um, yeah. But we find that sometimes when we do push back, or we, 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 or we, equip, we equip the person to push back in a thoughtful way that they yeah. can actually that they can actually get their workplace to rethink it. Um, and one of, the, one of the concepts that we, we talk a lot about, Jennifer and myself and my business partner as well, is viewpoint diversity, where if you include that mm. as one diversity, it can neutralize that ideology because now you have to respect my perspective and my ideology, not just my skin color, or my gender, or my sexuality. You know, what you said point, just, oh, sorry, go no, on. no, no, please go ahead, Steve. Say what um, David just said there is so important. I think that the um, the idea of being able to push back compassionately and with respect and with understanding of what you're talking about. I think that one of the things I see a lot of people on the kind of the non woke side of things, the mistake I see them making, is that they are too quick to jump to ridicule or anger or just oh you people or whatever you're so racist and stupid. I don't necessarily disagree with them sometimes, but the point is that, that will 
that's equally unlikely to work. Right. Like, I think right. that the way to make pro progress is that we actually understand these things in a way that we can talk about them compassionately. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why I've been successful in writing is that I do understand both sides of these arguments. I do understand where a lot of these people are coming from. I've seen people um, and been friends with people who have, black people who have this anger and who have this frustration and do kind of just want to tear everything down. And in understanding that problem, I understand a little better how to communicate those problems and, and how to point out the flaws in them. And I think that's a vital piece of this going forward. I think that, that level of education is going to be essential for everybody who doesn't want to see this kind of thing overrun our society, which uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, I would have said was impossible and it's sheerly on how preposterous it is. But today it's very obvious that we're making that progress purely on the power of people's guilt. So I think it's really important that we actually do our best to have ways to, to dispute this stuff, which is not um, confrontational. Well, you can be confrontational, but just not um, dismissive and aggressive. It, right. it won't work. Well, and you both of you guys bring up something that I wanted to address was, um, you know, I went to a diversity training, what well, was kind of like a, a whiteness training. And I went there because I wanted to talk like we're talking right now. I wanted to hear stories because you're right. I will not ever know some of the things that my, you know, black brothers and sisters have been through. So I want to hear them tell me so that I can at least start to, you know, understand or have that empathy that you mentioned, Steve. And I'll never forget, I was sitting there and this like, very um, woke, <laughs> even that word's becoming out of vogue, I think. Yeah, but um, right. younger white woman looked at me and she was writing something down furiously and she passed me a note. She goes, black people are tired of trying to teach white people. Here's a list <laughs> of resources. And it's what's so funny is I read these stuff because this is what we talk about all the time. So, I mean, I've read these resources, but my point was I want to hear so that I can you know, um, understand a, a situation. And it's not that you have to teach me. It's not like I'm, you know, don't teach me, but tell me so that I can have that empathy and that understanding and we can have a conversation. But if you just expect me to read books like White Fragility, which I have, then I'm not- I'm trying, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I am too. I mean, I don't, you know, but I've, I've read, I've read White Fragility, but I've read Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates too. I believe yeah. in looking at both sides. And so I've Absolutely. read, I've done my, my homework, but it really is that personal connection where you, Steve, or another friend of mine says, you know, when this happened, this is how I felt, that it actually hits home for me, that it actually clicks. And so um, I think that we're also, there is that sense, uh, at least in America of, you know, do your homework. You know, if you don't understand, do your homework. It's like, even if you have, then, then how are we to have that conversation that takes us to the next step where we, um, we come together? This, this, here's the other thing as well about that, because I, I have a real problem with that. Like, first of all, people who are tired of having this conversation should step out of the conversation. I understand it. I do understand where you're coming from. If you're sick of explaining a certain thing over and over and again, or you've had too many conversations with a certain type of person who's dismissive, I totally understand you don't want to have that conversation. But then step back from it. Don't act as if that's the way that we progress, because other people are willing to have those conversations and those conversations still need to be had. Like there are a lot of people on the planet and not all of them have heard the same things that you've been saying. So if you don't want to say it, you don't think it's important enough to say. Like there are plenty of times when I have conversations and I really don't want to say the same thing I've said before, but I understand this is an important enough issue that I need to repeat it, so I will repeat it. 
Um, but second of all, this whole idea of doing the homework, black people are human beings. We are not homework, we are not a thing which you just go into a library, read a book on and understand. Right. We have a whole range of experience, we have a whole range of thoughts, and the only way you can really get a good cross-section of those is by speaking to many of us, asking us how we feel, reconciling in your mind that our thoughts are different, and finding a way to build a cohesive way forward. That's that's the work, you know? So the idea that you're supposed to sort of hand out a note saying, oh, we're black people. What do you mean black people are? What do you know about what black people are? What are you saying, you know? Some, some people don't want to have a conversation, but some white people don't want to have a conversation either. That's fine. Don't pretend that you're trying to move things forward. Like, we can't move things forward on a platform of silence. We have to talk. Um, and that means, that, yes, we're going to have to repeat ourselves. We're going to have to put out reading out there for you to read. You know, I'm a writer, but I can say to someone, hey, go and read this article I wrote. This explains my thoughts about this. But similarly, I understand that not everybody's going to do that. In fact, far few, few people will go seek out my writing and read it than will sit there with me and talk to me. So, again, if I think this issue is important enough, I have to do it. Um, but yeah, that maybe we'll touch more on that later, but that's something which really bothers me, that whole kind of saviorism of, oh, this is what black people want, says a white person. Says, right, says a white person. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and that's what made me, I'm like sitting there and I went there specifically to hear black voices mm. and I end up hearing a bunch of white voices and, and, it, and, 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 and they're coming out as allies, but I'm kind of like, that's to me, if I was black, I would see that more as racist, where you're, you're speaking for someone where you've never had that experience. I have, anyways. Um. That's why I think this term neo-racism is so perfect. It's kind yeah. of like, actually, I'm writing on this topic at the moment. It's the idea that there's a socially acceptable racism now, mm -hmm. um, where then we have the racism which is which is kind of widely agreed to be unacceptable and. Even, you know, woke, not woke, no whatever else, most people will, will point to something which is the old style of racist and say, yes, we shouldn't be doing that, that's awful, no, we're against that. But then there's this new breed of racism which somehow has kind of slipped through the cracks to a point where now we can say, okay, so I can speak for a black person, or I can, I can encourage segregation between black and white people, or I can say things about what it means to be black, which are obviously pejorative, or what it means to be white, which are obviously um, elevating. And, and not only is that not racist, or not negative at least, but it's actually something which earns me virtue points for doing, you know? And it's, it's the most infuriating thing, um, because the way that I see that is just extra work that we have to now undo to get back on course. You know, all of this stuff is taking us further away from where we were on ter in terms of race discussion. Um, now we have to kind of get back to there before we can still do you know, that, that journey that we still needed to do in the first place. We have to get back to that point uh, because we're being taken further away from it on this insane tangent. David, I'm almost done with my drink. I've got one more question for Steve, but do you have something? No, please go ahead. Okay, this is kind of a fun thing to end on, Steve. Well, I, fun's not the right word, but um, <laughs> coming from the UK and talking about racism, what is the general mood there about um, Meghan Markle? Because we heard that the there is some racism. Honestly, <laughs> I haven't really been that involved in it. I am, 
you, as you might have guessed from just my general views on things, I am about as anti-royal as you can imagine. Not anti, I just think, I don't understand, again, the idea, wait a minute, why do we have this family that are the richest landowners in the world who do very little for the subjects and are by default millionaires just by virtue of their blood? Do we not see a problem with that? So um, I'm definitely not a royalist. Um, and so I... <laughs> It's such, a, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? When you just think, okay, so please put your hand up if you're surprised that a white family that have been landowners for generations that oversaw our empire are racist. Anybody? Anybody at all? Like it's the, it's the most incredibly unsurprising news in the history of Greece. So um, I don't know the details, of course, like what's going on with Megan, what exactly was the situation. I'm not in any way surprised that they're racist. Um, you know, it's funny, I, yes. I, had, I, I was telling, making, you know, my, my, my mother, so my, obviously my, my dad is, knows, is, knows of your work. I was sharing it with my mother and I go, do you have any, any questions? She goes, yes, I need to know about making Marvel. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wish I could give you more insight. Yeah, it's not a subject which I'm not interested in. Yeah, well, you know what? That's because she was asking me about it. And I was, so we're on the same page, Steve. So don't worry about it. I just had to throw it out there because I was like, mom, I don't give a damn about what the royalty is doing. Like I'm trying to, you know, I've got life here. You have a family of millionaires. They're racist. You have a millionaire who joined the family and now she's leaving. It's okay. And we all carry on. Yeah, exactly. I think you've got slightly bigger fish to fry. This is really great to talk to you. I'm I'm so glad we were able to talk face to face, at least on Zoom, because it. I've seen you on Twitter and I think you're one of the really thoughtful people, compassionate voices, and thinking deeply about these issues. Your writing is obviously really making a difference, and it's it's really been a pleasure to be able to talk it through. Thank yeah. you. No, it's been yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I mean, your writing really is making a difference, and it's starting a conversation, you know, both here and I think in the larger um, internet sphere. So we appreciate you. I'm gonna stick with it. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.